You're listening to the Really Useful Podcast. This is the tech podcast for technophobes from makeuseof.com. My name is Christian Corley, and joining me this week is James Frew. How are you doing, James? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, as you know, I chatted to you briefly beforehand. I slept in this morning, which hmm. was... Uh, an interesting thing to have done when you're trying to prepare for a podcast, <laughs> but I've, I feel equipped. I've got some water. I've actually read up on the topic and I think I know what I'm going to be talking about. <laughs> Excellent. That always helps. I spent most of the morning tidying the living room floor up only to discover that the RoboVac has been knocked off charge and is absolutely flat. So I did hope to be, I know it doesn't mean anything to you guys or you, James, anyone listening, it doesn't matter whether or not my house is clean and tidy, but it matters to me because now I'm going to find my attention diverted by bits and bobs on the hardwood flooring. It's frustrating as well because around Christmas you end up with like, the weather's not so great, so you get mud all over the floor and Mm. the Robovacs are quite good for that really, aren't they? Because you can just let them go and then you don't have to worry about doing like a weekly clean or anything like that. The best thing I like about them is just getting the house ready, then Mm. going out and pressing play. And then you get back from wherever you've been shopping or see family or whatever, and the house has been... (laughs) It's as if the pixies have been around hoovering up. Your Robovac's (laughs) done it for you. It's really cool. I I mean, I honestly think the Robovac is the, the biggest thing in household maintenance. And maintenance isn't the right word, but I'm going to say maintenance. Since the dishwasher, yeah, I think it's that t- it's that level of game changer. It takes away the time-consuming act of hoovering up, in the same way a dishwasher takes away the time-consuming act of washing up. And mm. yeah, it's it's a wonder device. I'm amazed more people don't have them. So you've reviewed a few in the past, haven't you? I think I've reviewed one, um, mm. and then I've um, and I've bought a separate one because I've never even used one. The, the layout of our place doesn't really lend itself that well to it. Right. So I've not reviewed any for the site either. So do you think it's better than just upgrading your vacuum? I I think it is, yeah. I, I feel it. I believe it is. I mean, certainly in terms of our place, ours is, uh, our downstairs is entirely, it's either hardwood or in the kitchen it's lino. So the RoboVac is perfect for that. It might not be ideal mm. for carpeted places or carp- carpets that are quite, have like a deep, pile uh but for for flat carpets and hardwood floors and similar i think it's the best option to be honest with you it it, you'd be amazed how much it actually picks up off a hardwood floor and Mm. if you compare that like just not just so much like the 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 bits and bobs but the actual dust that it collects and you think about how much dust must be in a carpet when you've looked at how much it's collected off a hardwood floor i mean i'm kind of a averse to having any more carpets to be honest with you because i have asthma my little boy has asthma as well so having that dust around and having it cleaned up is really really important and it means that you don't have to be in kicking up all the dust uh, as you're cleaning because like you said you can go out the house and then you're not having to breathe it all in as it's getting moved around exactly exactly yeah um now funnily enough we're not actually here to talk about robovax this week are we I mean, we're talking about a slightly related tangential topic, I suppose. Which is? The right to repair. The right to repair. So if you've not encountered this before, it's basically the idea that you should be able to repair the devices that you buy. That's, in a nutshell, all it really is. But there's a lot of reasons why 
is not always practical or possible or legislated for or even desired. And there's been a bit of a debate about, I say a debate, companies are trying not to have you repair your devices and mostly people want to be able to repair their devices. Yeah. And the sort of push-pull between those two things has been going on for, well, a very long time, but in the modern movement, about 10 years now. The fact that people aren't allowed to repair their devices or limited to it, that might be a surprise to some people, mightn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, obviously we write for uh, an American audience on our site, um, and you're probably familiar with, like, you watch many, many films, and there's a a typical scene of somebody repairing their car you know it's so ingrained in the culture that you would be able to repair your own things that it's almost a trope in movie making that you know someone's working they're repairing their car they have the knowledge to be able to do it they have the tools to be able to do it and the spare parts as well Mm. and you need all three of those things to make that work and what's increasingly been happening is the technology has got more complicated and the business models of the companies making it have changed over time as well to the point where like so you've got i don't know a general motors car from the 1950s a lot of people would be able to go and repair that themselves you know if the parts are still being made but if you were then to compare that against the tesla which is currently the most valuable car company in the world you cannot even touch their cars like there's nothing that you can do to repair it if it needs a repair or something breaks you have to take it to tesla mm-hmm. And I think that shows the shift that's been happening over the past couple of decades, but very recently as well. Um, companies have realized that they can charge for stuff and charge for repairs and charge for service contracts and all those types of things. And it's an easy way for them to make income above just selling you the product. Yeah, it's a change that no one's asked for, isn't it? Yeah. Other than maybe shareholders. I wouldn't say that, you know, you go into a shop and you go, I'd like a re- um, a phone that I can't repair and I'd love to pay an extra $50 a month just in case it needs a repair. Yeah. You know, that's not something that's in the consumer's best interest. No one has ever said that phrase in the history of the world. <laughs> I might just go into a shop next week and say it just so that I can be the first. You've already said I it. don't mean it. You already are the first. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I've had uh, occasions in the past where I've had to get in touch with someone to have, again, with cars, because cars are increasingly, you know, they are consumer technology increasingly, aren't they? The, the, it, as time progresses, we have more and more electronics in cars and computers in cars, computer systems in cars. I've had a um, case in the past when I've had to get someone out to repair a car, and it's basically been a guy plugging in a cable and pressing some buttons on a keyboard to repair the car. Mm. Yeah, and that's increasingly what's becoming the case. So even if you could understand the computers inside them, quite often the software required to do the repair is proprietary and only given to authorized repair centers or even you know first-party repair centers. So, for example, I have a Honda, and most of the time a lot of the repairs have to be done by Honda because they're the only ones with the software to be able to plug into the onboard computer to be able to read it properly. Um, and that's only going to, that's only been getting you know, my Honda's nearly 15 years old. So that's still like fairly rudimentary in this, but, um, you know, if you were buying a car in 2020 or 2021, it's going to be almost impossible to repair it yourself. And that is obviously a concern, but also to be able to take it to any repair shop 
you know, it has to go to a specific one, one that's authorized by the re the retailer in the first place. Um, in terms of consumer technology, you see this most with Apple, where you have to take it. If you break your iPhone or your Mac, you have to take it to an Apple licensed repair shop. And this means that Apple gets income from the repair shop. It gets income from you having to take it there and service contracts. And they also get to license their repair units and whatever else. So it's a huge revenue stream for them, but none of it is in your favor. Yeah, and it's certainly not just Apple either. Um, I mean, my long-running listeners of the Really Useful podcast will know that I had issues with my tablet uh, around 12 months ago. And I couldn't just take it to any old store. I had to go to a Samsung store. And and this is the other side of it in many ways. You, you, you're paying a fee. You're not allowed to repair it yourself. Someone has to repair it for you who's licensed. But also, you're also stuck to their schedule and their own supply chain. And mm. my tablet took something like two to three months to repair, which was absolutely insane. And yes, they came out and did it in a van packed inside my house, but they had to do that like three times because they didn't have the right yeah. parts, which is insane. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't accept it, for example, if you know your fridge freezer broke and they said you can only take it to one repair place or only one certain repair uh, shop can come out and do it for you mm. it would seem illogical you know if all your food's going off because the fridge isn't working you want it repaired as soon as possible yeah and you don't want to have to pay some kind of extortionate fee for it and then what this also promotes is the idea that it may be cheaper to replace the unit than to repair it now that's obviously works out economically for you you know in that moment if you've got something you need to repair and it's cheaper to replace then you will probably do it but it generates tons of waste, like completely unnecessarily, because it's the company's decision to limit your ability to repair that is causing that. Yeah. You know, imagine having, I don't know, a light go in your car. And they said, well, you know, to be honest, it's a legal requirement for you to have the light. But, you know, it will be $2,000 to replace the light and your car is only worth 1500 I mean, it's ridiculous, right? Then you're throwing away the entire car to replace this tiny little unit. Um, I actually had a similar thing where my car is looks black, but it's not actually black. It's called deep bronze. So it's a very particular type of paint. It's mm -hmm. a paint that's trademarked by the car manufacturer. And someone drove into the car and created a scratch down the side. And I thought I'd go and it wasn't working out on insurance. So I thought I'll investigate and get a quote myself for, for um, how much it would cost. And it was actually more than the value of the car. Wow. Just to replace a scratch. I mean, it was just absolutely ridiculous. But this is the situation that you find yourself in where things are limited to just one company or one single repairer because they basically have a monopoly yeah. on the repair and they can charge you however much they want. It's great, frightening in many ways how this has come into being, isn't it? How this has just happened. It's like a slow crawl towards this, which is why i suppose there's a big movement against it yeah so obviously the fundamental part of this is that when you buy a product you feel like it's your own you know you don't expect to pay 500 dollars for a laptop only for it to be told oh actually you don't really own this you're basically renting it because you can't repair it you can't fix it yourself and if it breaks 
there's nothing you can do about it you can't fix it yeah and i think that jars with a lot of people because you think well i've worked for my money i've worked for this product i want to own this product and do with it however i wish and increasingly that's not the case and particularly with smartphones and this kind of um high value consumer electronics that a lot of us have got over the past I don't know, 20 years, but predominantly over the past 10 or 15 since smartphones, you know, it's becoming more evident that we're being told you have to get a new one and you can't replace your old one. And your old one is being limited in some way. So, and the reason that I use this company a lot as an illustration is because they control the whole process. Okay. Apple got in trouble a few years ago for planned obsolescence. Now, this is the idea that you buy a product and after a few years, the company will limit it in some way to make it worse, to incentivize you getting a new one. And people worked out that Apple was intentionally limiting the battery on older phones so that your battery wouldn't last as long. So you feel incentivized doing that with to go and get a new phone. And that's pretty appalling behavior because the battery is like one of the cheapest parts of the phone and should be easily replaceable. You know, if you look back to phones sort of in the mid 2000s, you could pop the back off take out the battery uh. and put a new one in and then suddenly your phone's ready to go again. And the idea that you can't do that now is incredibly frustrating, but also means that you're at the mercy of however they choose to modify the, the software on the phone. Cause if the phone goes, okay, well this is a model from 2017 and we don't like those phones anymore. So we're going to slow this phone down so that it becomes noticeably worse. So you have a worse experience and you feel like you need to go and get a new one. And um, that's a tactic that's being used all over the place. It's not just Apple. Um, every company is guilty of it to some degree in the electronics field. And it's incredibly frustrating because it makes a product that the hardware would be fine to carry on, but the software is limiting what it can do. So just to, just to reiterate, they were updating their own device software to make the device perform more poorly. Yes, yeah, right. effectively. And, the, the, you know, that turned into a bit of a PR problem for them. So what they said was, oh, we'll replace the battery for you. But then they they got the PR win for that. But then over time, they changed the boundaries of which batteries they were replaced from which models and mm. made it all a bit more complicated. So it wasn't quite as win for the consumer as it appeared. Um, I mean, ultimately... They st their business is selling you a phone and anything they can do to make that happen is what they'll do. And they don't want to undermine that. Sure. So there's all sorts of um, products that come under this kind of umbrella of planned obsolescence, isn't there? And it's been increasing over the years. So you probably know that, you may not know this, but you may have noticed that printers are cheaper now. And they're, they're, they're basically, despite the you know, comparative environmental cost of disposing of a printer and the cartridges and everything associated with the printer um i mean they're, they're essentially you know the 30 pounds 30 dollars 50 dollars or whatever quite often the printer is cheaper than the ink cartridges and they're pretty much disposable devices aren't they and they're not designed to last yeah and the the other issue with printers is what they've worked out is a similar thing to charging you for a repair is that subscription costs get them more money for less work mm. so their margins are, are higher so they've worked out that if they subsidize the printer, you're going to get an HP or an Epson printer, whatever it is. But then they know that you need ink and you'll need ink regularly. So they can just charge you for the ink. 
and you'll go, oh, I'm not going to buy a new printer because the ink is too expensive. You'll go, oh, it's really annoying that the ink is expensive. Let me just order some more. You know, you're kind of tied into their their system, as it were. And that's what's been happening more and more with printers. So you find that in other areas as well, where the hardware is somewhat subsidized, but then you're charged some kind of subscription somewhere else to cover it. And the recurring monthly subscription is what they want because a lot of companies have worked out that it's just higher margin to operate in that way. So for example, like uh, going back to cars again, um, I was reading that BMW, so BMW cars are generally considered premium vehicles. They're expensive and they've worked out, well, what they want to do is charge you a subscription for using some of the features in your car. So for example, it comes with heated seats, but heated seats are part of a subscription package that you can only access if you're paying the 19.99 a month. Wow. And I'll, and otherwise, they'll do an over-the-air update to disable them. Good luck. Which is just, it's astonishing because that really does, like, people think that they own their car when they buy it. You know, yeah. it's still not in the realm of software and things for most people. They see a car as, like, a physical product that when you've laid out the money for it, you own it. And if you've paid for the feature, you should just be able to have it. But the idea that you can be blocked by software updates from using a physical hardware feature on your car is just, it's incredible. It's an in-app purchase, essentially, isn't it, for your car? Yeah. If yeah. you view your car as an app. That's just, that is, you're absolutely right, it is astonishing. It's jaw-dropping. Mm. I mean, to be fair to BMW, they're not really the first. It's just that particular example seems very mm. flippant. Yeah. Um, but Tesla has been leading this way for the last few years, really. Because they're so reliant on the technology in it, and you know Elon Musk has pitched it as like you know it's a modern car, it's got a computer in it, it's very exciting, futuristic, and all that. But all of the features are enabled by software updates that Tesla does. So I think they get a lot of good PR for the interesting updates they do. So I think a few years ago they did an over-the-air update, which got your car's doors to synchronize to Christmas music, so they'd open and shut. I think there's a video of it. And like, it's quite funny to watch, but actually what it's telling you is we control your car. You don't, yeah. we do. Yeah. And I think that's, that's quite an intimidating vision of the future, not just for cars, but for everything. And I think the reason that I've gone back to cars as an illustration of it so often is because it's a product that has changed so much over time. We notice it less with laptops or with our computer because they're quite recent devices, but you know, we've had cars for you know our whole life. Yeah. They've been around and you associate them as being this not primitive, but quite um, primary hardware product that just sits out on the street and you can get in it and it's physical and it works and it's nothing to do with this digital online world. But increasingly it's been pulled in that direction and away from your ability to repair it. Yeah. So it's being the, you're kind of renting it. It's, a, it's hardware as a service, really. Yeah, and also you control the car as well, don't you? Mm -hmm. It's entirely like what it does. It's entirely down to you, um, or traditionally speaking. And increasingly, that's less of a case when you get things like uh, um, specialized braking for road holding, and mm. um, and computer systems and thermostats inside the car and all that sort of thing. And 
automatic windscreen wipers, automatic lights. I have automatic lights and wipers on my car. The wipers are easy to sort out. The lights, I'm never 100% certain whether they're really, really on automatic. So I'm always checking. Yeah. Which isn't particularly good when you're driving along and then just quickly having to check something that you feel should already be, you know, if you'd have done it yourself, you'd know the lights were on. And, yeah. You know, the, an LED might have gone on the dashboard, so you don't know if the lights are on or not. So, yeah. It's uh, okay. Let's hit this. If I was new to the subject at this point in the podcast, I'd be thinking, well, what the hell are we going to do about right to repair and planned obsolescence? Now, fortunately, there are some groups all over the place, particularly in North America, that are working towards having the right to repair. The modern right to repair movement actually originated in the States and it's part of the Repair Association or TRA. And what they do is they do a lot of the lobbying for legislative changes. And the reason for this is that ultimately you as a single consumer don't really have that much sway with a company. You know, if you said, I'm not going to buy my phone with Apple because I don't agree with what they do. Well, what's your other choices? You know, other companies act in the same way. And you as a single person opting not to buy an Apple phone isn't going to really change things ultimately. So you need legislation to prevent companies from doing this kind of planned obsolescence or making it difficult to repair. So for example, like there are things like some of these hardware companies have come up with certain screws that are unique, which prevent you from even opening the device yourself. So even if you wanted to try and butcher apart your phone, you can't, you physically can't get into it. And those are the kind of things that we could legislate against so that there is, there are options, you know, and in the States, it's had quite a, I would say difficult history, Mm -hmm. mostly because, um, the political setup is very heavily influenced by lobbying. Now you might have noticed over the past few years that some of the largest companies in the world are technology companies based in the States. So you'll have Apple, Google, um, Facebook, Amazon, a lot of these companies have incentives not to allow you to repair your own devices. And so they spend tons of money lobbying legislators to prevent it. So what's happened is that in lots of states, there are legislative things put forward, bills put forward, they get debated, but ultimately turned down. There have been some small successes, but there's never been like a big hurrah moment where everyone's gone, yes, this is exactly what we needed. This is exactly what we were looking for. And it'll prevent some of these issues. Interestingly, the movement is newer in the European Union, but actually as of a few weeks ago, they actually passed the right to repair legislation. Now it's limited to some household devices like lighting, washing machines, dishwashers, and fridges. So it doesn't go as far as hitting your you know, regular daily consumer electronics like phones, laptops, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it is the first time that strong legislation has actually been passed anywhere in the world to prevent these kind of activities. So it's a, step, it's a good step in the right direction. Now, obviously, you could support some of these organizations. So in the EU, it's called Right to Repair Europe. And as I said, in, in the States, it is the Repair Association. So you can get involved with them, do lobbying, talk to your local politicians, all that kind of stuff. All of the kind of things that you want to see to change legislation, those are important here. But ultimately, that's more of a collective thing that's less inside of your daily control. So if you wanted to, there are other things you can do 
um, on a more personal level to try and shift away from some of these things that are preventing you from repairing your devices or having to throw them away and all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, so as James mentions, there are certain things that you can do to uh, make sure that you can repair things. And that really is in terms of when you're heading out to buy stuff or choosing hardware to purchase online, uh, make sure that you know everything about it, first of all, and to take certain steps to avoid the wrong kit. So avoid shiny new stuff, avoid things with kind of unibody chassis, any device that you can't actually get into. Instead, look for devices that have screws that you can that are recognizable screws, screws that you'll be able to open. That might mean using a screwdriver. It might mean using a screwdriver with a, a Torx bit, which means buying a set of screwdrivers. Well, they're readily available. You can buy them online. I've got a kit. cost me probably £5, really cheap. Moving on, you should consider free and open source software wherever possible. The community of free and open source considers the ability to fix and edit your own software as uh, it's basically a fundamental right and developers strive to support older hardware an extension of that avoiding specialized software and use software that can be tweaked and altered to overcome problems become acquainted with the iFixit site it's a community site has a ton of videos for pretty much every device you can think of and shows you how to tear them down and so you can get to the bits that you need to repair have you repaired anything using iFixit or any sort of guide and gone in with specialist screwdrivers and come away with a success? Um, I haven't had cause to, okay. but there have been times where I've done more like regular maintenance, uh, say, say on a laptop, upgrading the storage, changing the memory, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, just to give an illustrative example, I know I'm going to choose Apple again. Okay. But for example, on a MacBook, you can't open it if it's got a thing you need to take it to apple to repair you know it used to be the case the laptops you could just undo the screws on the bottom yeah. uh, replace out components as needed uh, so i've done stuff like that because that increases the lifetime of your your computer because often what happens is you've run out of storage space so you want to upgrade that or the memory has become a limiting factor so your computer feels sluggish and these are quite low cost interventions that can mean that your machine can last you know another five maybe even ten years so I've done that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I quite, where possible, I try and repair household items as well. So like washing machine and, uh, you know, the cooker. But there's only so much you can do without specialist knowledge. Yeah. So I think it's also important that I note here that the right to repair isn't necessarily about you repairing it yourself. Yeah, yeah. But it's about the ability to repair a device. You know, if my washing machine broke today, I can call any company, uh, any repair company to come out and have a look at it and they'd be able to sort it because there's an ability to open the machine up, look at what's wrong and replace the part. But increasingly what we're seeing is that people are being limited to only authorized repair centers or perhaps there's proprietary bits in there that aren't standard yeah. that you can't get access to. And that's really another part, another key part of the right to repair movement is that it shouldn't be that only one place is able to do your repair. It should be that there are multiple places for a freely functioning market so that A, you don't get ripped off on price because if there's a monopoly on it, then they can set whatever price they want. But if you have choice, then you have availability. So say like, um, I think one of the articles we've got on our site, which I'm sure will be linked, makes the shows the example of, so I think there's only one authorized repair center in Nebraska according to our article, 
And that means that if you need it in a in a rush or you need the repair quite, done quite quickly, it's just not going to be possible. Whereas if there's multiple repair centers that can all do the same job, mm-hmm. then obviously it can get done quickly. Or And the same goes for like your car. You know, if you have to take it to a Tesla center, then there's not many of them, right? And whereas you could go to the garage around the corner. And I think that's that's an important part that we don't make it seem too much like the focus is on you repairing the item, but it's about the repairability yeah. of the item itself. Twelve months or so ago, uh, I now more recently I've bought a new car, but twelve months ago, uh, the my previous car was still not quite paid off, and it had a problem with the heating system, and it was out of service warranty, so I didn't really want to take it in, so I opted to replace it myself. Now this meant finding a very specific part and finding a very specific video on youtube in order to find out how to repair it because i found myself buying a very specific model of car uh it was a 2011 uh citroen c4 grand picasso it was a diesel model uh with hdi and 1.6 engine and there was something else very specific about that i can't quite remember at the moment and these very specific elements of this car meant that it had to use one very specific model of heater blower fan, which was completely different to every other diesel and every other petrol model in exactly the same mm-hmm. standard car um, from Citroen. And I ended up, I was able to repair it. I was able to make fit the new fan and it worked fine. And we had heating in the car again, which is obviously very important this time of year for clearing the windscreen at least not only to keep you warm as you drive but it took something like six weeks of research to find the right device ensure it fit fitted that type of car the exact type of car that i had i had a bit of help from ebay on that because you can specify particular car parts and whether they will fit your car also having to wait for it to arrive as well it took about three weeks to arrive and i ended up i was i bought it from eastern europe because you couldn't get it in the uk for anything close to a reasonable price so as a kind of addendum to what James was saying before, if you do choose to repair it yourself rather than use a um, third-party provider, you've got to be ready to put in a lot of hours to make sure you're getting the right parts to do the replacement work yourself. I should probably note, as we're getting towards the end of the conversation, really, that all of this sounds kind of abstract. You know, you might not see the practical daily value in being able to repair something because you might go, you know, it's not... It's not the end of the world that I have to choose a new phone or whatever. That that could be the perception, right? But this year, as we're recording 2020, there's obviously been the global coronavirus pandemic. Mm-hmm. And in sort of March and April, it was very chaotic. You know, lots of people ending up in hospital, sadly. But the way that people were being supported was through ventilators. And a lot of hospitals hadn't used ventilators much. They were either broken or old or, you know, there was no urgent need for them to have been replaced or fixed or anything. And then suddenly, with almost no notice, every hospital in the world suddenly needed their ventilators to work and work very effectively and quickly. So that meant that they couldn't buy new ventilators. They had to have working stuff in their hospital. And it became really apparent that even in the medical industry, the right to repair hadn't been applied. So these machines were incredibly difficult to fix. Some of them were prohibitive. Some of them you weren't even allowed to try and touch. 
and you had to have a representative from one of the companies come and do it for you. And it showed that it, what it really did was slow down people's treatment. And as a result, and I'm not, you know, I have no numbers to this, but as a result of the inability to fix these machines, people sadly died. And I think that really brings home the, the criticalness of being able to do these repairs and why this sort of stuff matters. Yeah. Um, and speaking of iFixit, as you mentioned earlier, um, they did try and help out with some of this in releasing, I think it was the largest known collection of manuals and service guides for medical equipment. And they tried to do that incredibly quickly so that even hospitals that didn't have the technical skills could try and do it if they, you know, if it was possible. Yeah. But it, it was really difficult for a lot of hospitals and put a lot of strain where in reality it wasn't necessary. Sure. And if these things had been designed differently, if the designs were open source, then you could have seen, you know, companies from all over the country try and help out. But unfortunately, proprietary machines coupled with difficulty to repair and strange service agreements that meant that, you know, the hospital staff couldn't even touch them just sort of coalesced into something that, uh, cause a lot of pain for a lot of people. And I think obviously not every situation is quite as severe as that, but I think it gives a good example as to why this stuff really matters. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that brings us to the end of this week's really useful podcast from Make Use Of. We are the tech podcast for technophobes. And I think James has um, concluded there really quite succinctly why it is important that we should have right to repair and why we should fight planned obsolescence. Everything we've spoken about in this week's show, you can find in the accompanying show notes, and we would urge you to share the show with as many people as you can who will find this information useful. You can find us on Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. You'll find us on Amazon Podcasts. You'll find us on Spotify. Uh, You will find us all over the place, pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast we will be there. And of course, you can find us at makeuseof.com. Until next time, it's goodbye from us. Thank you.